Hi, this is Michelle Weidenbenner, your Chief Hope Builder. If you are here, it's because you have a loved one with a substance use disorder and you're looking for support. Well, you're in the right place because I help you along your journey um, to, to introduce you to different people, different experts in the field, and to share hope with you because so often we get stuck and don't know how to live our lives without trying to fix our addicted loved ones. So I am the author of Moms Letting Go Without Giving Up, Seven Steps to Self-Recovery. And recently I will be launching Unhackable Moms of Addicted Loved Ones, Closing the Gap Between Havoc and Hope. This is a 30-day program that can help you go from havoc to hope and learn how to take charge of your own life. Think of it as a leadership book for moms who are in the same situation that I've been in and out of for so many years. Um, Please find my books at Amazon or anywhere that they are sold. If you would like to join us in a private Facebook group, you can find us at Moms Letting Go in Facebook. And um, if you'd like to join us in the tribe for more sisterhood and support, just go to Teachable. That's momslettinggo.teachable.com and find us there. But regardless, you're in the right place right now and we want to encourage you on your hope journey. We want to be here for you. Um, I have a group of care team members who are all where you have been or are today. So we want the best for you. God bless. Thank you and welcome. Hey, I am here today with Nick Patterson. Hi, Nick. Hi there. I met Nick because both he and I are speaking at the TEDx Eustis Florida event, January 28th. And when you hear his story, you'll know why he's here with us. I talked about you this morning on my Instagram reel, Nick. Really? Yeah. And I said, you know, the best thing moms can do is find a hope hero. And you are a hope hero to me. And I know you oh. will be to so many others. So um, is it is it okay if I share some of your story, um, even though it might be part of your TEDx? I think it's okay, isn't it? It is okay because you're not giving the talk in its entirety. It's fine. Feel free okay. to share whatever you think is relevant to your audience. Okay. Awesome. Okay. So, and I'm going to, um, I love stories because I'm a novelist too on the side and I love the hero's journey. And when I heard Nick's story, um, it was like, you know, the whole arc to this story. I mean, it's just like, are you serious? This really happened. So Nick, when he was nine, you lost, uh, or when you were nine already, you had suffered some severe trauma in your life because your mother had a substance use disorder. Am I right? That's right. And then when she was nine, she passed away. Yeah. When I was nine, she passed away. I mean, yeah, I said that wrong. When you were nine. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, so much of your life by the time you're nine 
Um, I parented my grandkids um, for years because their parents um, had a substance use disorder. So I know some of the trauma that they went through. And um, I know it wasn't as horrific as, as what you went through, but nonetheless, it's just really tough to start out like that. So then at, um, when she died and you were nine, did you go live with your grandmother right after that? My life had already been chaotic prior to then. And I would be with my grandparents half the time and with my mom half the time. Okay. Probably like my girls. Yeah. And then, um, what was your grandma's name? Joyce. Joyce. Okay. So, um, and then when you were living with Joyce, was it, and, and your grandpa, what were they the ones that bought you a piano? No, it was my mama who was Joyce. It was her mother, Mama Cat, her or Catherine. And it was my great grandmother that actually gifted me with the piano. Oh my goodness. So did she see some ability in you at that point? Or did was it just like something she wanted to do? They all saw the fascination I had at church. I would go and stand next to the, to the pianist and the organist at a small country, rural Alabama church. And just, I was mesmerized with watching the piano and hearing the melodies and all the other kids at the church played the piano. I was the only one that didn't. It was a very musical church. And that was just something that when you're ha when you have a small church and about seven kids, you know, it's not like there are a lot of kids there, but all of the others did play the piano. Oh my goodness. And you had like, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out. So you're like, there wait, you I want to play too. And yes. great, great grandma, mama, she heard that. And so um, was it any type of piano or was it just um, a hand-me-down oh, Oh, it's a great story. They're, they used to advertise in the classifieds about pianos. And a truck pulled up to my driveway one day. There are no piano showcase rooms or anything like that in my area. And so this moving truck backed down into our driveway one day. And under the covers were new pianos. And they were asking which one I liked. And they didn't even go with which one I liked. They went with the one that matched the furniture. But, you know, it's just one of those things where I liked the shiny Blackwood. But we went with a very nice, um, I believe it was an oak. And it, it was appropriate for our home. And it was a brand. And this is funny because I've been in the piano industry I've never seen another piano with the brand name. It was just a cheap Asian made piano, you know, a factory made piano and very plastic and parts and that sort of oh. thing. But it was my piano and I absolutely loved it. It didn't, I didn't know it didn't matter. No, you didn't and know any. I loved it. I loved it. So, yeah. but it was the, the brand name of Khan 
which is like the trumpet, but they are different companies I researched. Okay, so. interesting. Yeah, because I'm like, wait, I've heard con because my husband used to play the trumpet or something. So yeah, I'll be darn. Okay, so what? how old then were you when you started playing? I was, I was 10 when I started playing. Okay, and so did it bring you a lot of comfort or how, and how long did you play? What motivated you? Okay. I, from my first lesson, which I've got to briefly tell you why music education is so important to me. My very first year, the local piano teacher was full. So she had her younger students teaching and so I learned from a 10th grader my first year playing, and I learned to play without my thumbs. So my second year with the main teacher, I had to relearn how to play oh. with my thumbs. But I had progressed so much that the main teacher wanted to teach me. And so it was just, you know, three or four months of relearning. But that's why I've learned why it's important to teach certain things along the way. <laughs> just because of that experience of having to go backward. But it, although I believe it probably solidified my foundation, it was, it was one of those things I'll never forget having to go back to the beginning. Oh, I would have been like, what? yeah. Yeah. I know in, um, I, I think I share with you, I taught well in Suzuki, our youngest, um, we, we adopted her from an orphanage. So she was in, in an orphanage for two years. And when she came to live with us, she seemed to really connect with music and she was always humming. And so I enrolled her in, um, oh, and she could go to a movie and watch a movie and then later say, this is the music that was playing during this scene. And I'd be like, what? Like she would remember that. And so I put her in Suzuki because I thought, well, she's, she's obviously got some kind of ear and I never learned by ear. So in Suzuki, they learn the twinkles for months. It's so annoying. But the trick, like with the hands is, you know, you learn how to, to do this, like just different techniques than that you carry throughout your whole, you know, your, your, all, all your life of when you're playing. So anyway, but that's just a side note. Um, but I want to get back to your story because um, at some point you have a shift in things in your life and you start taking the wrong path. Am I right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I went on with my music. I competed with my music. I, I did all of those things, ended up working, representing Steinway and Sons and then lost everything because of my choices. I was making horrible decisions. I thought I was going back because I'd gone to a performing arts high school, which was residential, those kinds of things. You know, I thought I had missed out because I never went to the bad crowd. I never did those things. And then all of a sudden life happened and I took horrible choices and roads. Yeah. So did any of those choices, though, involve substance use? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I started, go ahead. if you want me to share what I did, I don't oh, know what. Sure. Yeah. I mean, these, okay. So my son went from opioids to heroin to meth. 
they were emaciated, homeless, jobless when they finally went to him and his wife went to recovery. Most of the moms who listen to this have come to the point in their lives where they no longer are ashamed of their, their loved ones. They are, they are, they believe like I do that this is a disease that we need to gather around and care for people through, not treat them like it was, you know, like they were immoral, like it was a moral failure. Um, And so anything, you know, you can share what you want, but just know we're not going to judge you. So sure. And I appreciate that. But it, they say a lot of times people and their spouses marry people like their parents. <laughs> and my wife that I met, she, when we first married, there was no substance abuse whatsoever. But her mother warned me that she had gone through a period in her late teens and where there was a lot of partying and and those kinds of things, some run-ins with the law even. And when we got together, there was none of that. But then one of her friends died and of a heroin overdose in Erie, Pennsylvania. That was the opening. And to be honest, I had never connected with anyone like I connected with her. She was the first person you know, I'm overweight. There's some other things there. And I, you know, just with self-esteem, that sort of thing, she was the first person that I felt really loved me and accepted me for me. And when she started drifting away, I went after her. I really did. I went after her and I remember seeing her start down this journey and I wanted to be with her. And it wasn't a conscious choice that I wanted to go and do drugs or anything like that. I, I don't think anybody would go down a road if they're like, Hey, I'm about to mess everything in my life up. Right. No. But, yeah. But that's, I started walking down that road and I had never done drugs. And, you know, there of course was marijuana and yeah. then there was cocaine and she started into heroin. I never made that shift. Thankfully, But that led just to so many things coming into our marriage, into our lives. And then there came a point where I was afraid to have our kids around that. So probably like you're saying, the cycle repeated. I took the kids back to my grandparents because I was working full time and I was able to be functional while you know, doing marijuana and all of that kind of stuff. And she was not, Um, she ended up losing her medical license. She was a nurse practitioner, um, ended up her medical license and we lost just about everything. And, you know, that's when I started down that road, but I was able to maintain one life, another life, one life, another life for many years, for many years, but I never felt authentic after then. I never felt whole. I felt guilty. I felt dirty. And, you know, unlike you all, my family wanted nothing to do with me. And even to this day, Mm -hmm. there's not been a restoration. My family does 
even if they watch this, they would not care. They would not care. And that's, they think, you know, that I would probably be on drugs still. And, and you, so, you know, I can give. Oh, Nick, I, that just makes my heartache. It really does. And this is why I do what I do because so many, I've heard this so many times where the families just abandon their children. And I'm like, okay, so if your kid had heart disease or cancer or diabetes, would you, would you abandon them for that? But the symptoms of an addiction, a substance use disorder, or the disease of the brain, like um, that the symptoms are so disgusting, like the lying and the cheating. But, you know, once you look at the neuroscience of what's happening to the brain, um, that's where I have my mom start because you've got to let go of the guilt. What did I do wrong of the shame? I don't want to associate myself with them. Um, you know, that's the first step toward healing. So um, that's going to be a prayer that I, I, I will keep praying that your family comes around because I believe one of these days, like I always, you know how we look at our, our ancestors from long ago, hundreds of years ago. And we're just like shocked at how they treated certain people. I believe that's going to happen. And 200 years from now, they're going to look back on how we treated people in jails and prisons with substance use disorders. And they're going to be horrified. Like, why didn't they, why did they allow that? Why didn't they stop that? Oh, duh. <laughs> you know, I don't know. So there's got to be a better way, right? Anyway, I'm on my soapbox. Sorry. <laughs> no, uh, hey, we're we're on the same page. That's exactly how I feel. And of course, that's what propels me to do, you know, what I'm doing today. Yeah. But even I, I don't know, you know, what you want to share from there. I'm not I I'm at, well, or what you so here's, here's why I want to go. I want to keep going in your story because, oh my gosh, we haven't gotten to the good, well, the good part, the great parts. I mean, and who knows? A lot of those are still coming. We don't even know that yet, right? But yeah. the next part in your story is you end up in, is it jail or prison? Prison for almost a decade. So 10, almost 10 years. <gasps> okay. Absolutely. And when you And when you get in there, um, I think when I heard your story, you shared that you were, um, I don't know if introvert is the right word, but you were withdrawn and you felt hopeless and you really didn't care about anybody in there. You didn't care about your life. You didn't, you didn't surely didn't love yourself. I think no. is what you said. Absolutely not. I but, was angry with myself. Sure. Right. Yeah. And moms, do you think he's the only one like your child who is incarcerated? They don't want pity. They don't. I, I mean, they just don't want to be where they're at. They look at their lives and they're like, are you kidding me? How did I end up here? Right. Um, yeah, because you're you're not a bad person. You're not. So, OK, so you're in this prison and you're, you're feeling, you know, how long were, were you, did you have feelings of just so, so much despair and that you loathed yourself? How long did that go on? About five years. And so, after, go ahead. No, I was just saying that was, that was what I call my darkest period. That was where there was no light. 
and being around so much violence and that sort of thing, it makes you numb. And typically people go to substances to get numb. And the unfortunate thing about prisons is there are more substances inside of prisons than I believe you could find on the street. And I'm not saying that to discourage anyone, but it's the truth. And it's an unfortunate reality in many prisons. And then when you get to one where it's not there, there's a completely different culture and environment. But it takes the administration as well as the guards to have a zero tolerance policy both for the prisoners and the staff to make that happen. So did you end up at a very different prison after the first 10 years? You after the first five, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, that, that's it. I went from a place where, you know, I, I saw people raped. I saw all just, just the worst thing ever. And okay. I was in horrible situations there. And then I went to another prison and it was a prison that was supposed to help. It was a work camp, but inside the work camp, the staff were so caught up with making money from the inmates and getting their family to send them stuff and then them bringing substances in and cell phones in and that sort of thing that there, there were so much gang influence as well as in the in the police officers there the correctional officers would joke and say that they're the biggest gang and i remember one time at that particular prison getting my head slammed into a wall because i'd asked the officer not he was screaming gd 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 i waited a couple of hours and i said you know, would you mind not doing that? You know, that's kind of, you know, offensive to me. And he, he, I, there was definitely physical retaliation after that, but it's amazing that he ended up coming to me like two weeks after then and apologizing to me for doing that. And that was kind of my first ray of hope that I had had in a long time because I had recently started reading the Bible again and just i went to a couple of aa meetings there it was kind of like the twilight before the dawn if that makes sense that's okay. where kind of hope started springing back up just a little bit and then it was shut down um i i was asked to do some crazy things for staff members and i ended up as i shared before with you and with others being in the box and although I didn't have a charge, they can put you in the box just for administrative reasons under investigation. And that's what they did to get me transferred from there. And oh, I ended so they up, intentionally transferred you to a better place. Someone, all I can think of is the Lord intervened at that point because they told me I was going to Mayo CI, which in Florida is one of the most dangerous prisons. That's where it said on my transfer sheet. And then the morning of that changed to Putnam Correctional Institution, which is less than 500 people. It is still a full size. It's considered a full prison. It's not a work camp. And it, I didn't know it at the time, but it was 
the place that would change my life. Wow. Okay, so you you go there and you meet. Um, they they have they have services. Am I right? Like, and um, a pastor, and they start a choir. And this is Putnam. Is that an all men's facility? It so, is. so then you start, they start a choir and there's a piano there and they want to know, you know, does, does anybody here know how to play the piano? Am I, I don't kind of elaborate on that story. Cause I don't know if I have it right, but yeah, that's, that's very, very close. There had been a revival at that particular prison and they outgrew their library space. And in the nineties, a chapel was built they're not all like my other prisons didn't have a chapel like that. And so my second day at this prison, I was called to go to that chapel. And that's when I found out my adopted mother, Mama, died. My grandmother passed away. But it was while I was in there that I saw that piano. And as that and it it was just like I thought about that piano. I dreamed about that piano and I wanted to play it. But saying that I wanted to play it made me seem vulnerable. vulnerable. And that's I wasn't willing to do that. Right. Because I had not been at that place long enough. And in while incarcerated, you can't show weakness. And that's been the funniest thing since I've been out. Guys that I serve time with that are doing well that I've chosen to surround myself with and that sort of thing they're like wow you're completely different and and they had told me at the other place and I said absolutely I said I couldn't be nice and gentle and all those things no there way. because I would have I would have been killed probably yeah so. holy smokes um okay so then they ask, so does anybody know how to play the piano? So like, to me, this is like, this is like the part of this, the hero's journey where people are watching, just start crying because you get in there and you start playing the piano and everybody's like mouth just gapes open. Like, oh my gosh, you've been well, holding out on us, well, right? Was, well, I wish it was as Hallmark-esque oh. as that. It's very similar. It, I mean, but what I think is funny is a lot of times in in the prison environment, there will be guys, and I ended up becoming an orderly in that chapel, but there are inmates that have their prison job as working in different parts of the prison. When one guy saw me looking at the piano, he was like, you can't touch that. <laughs> those you know those kinds of things so I was already gun shy okay was, you know and he asked me then he was like you know how to play I was like you know it just kind of shrugged my shoulder I didn't admit to knowing how to play I but I didn't want to lie either so I was like eh, you know yeah. so when they asked the question I was already getting in that place emotionally and to make that step, because I had been thinking about this piano now for several months. Well, and, and didn't you and feel that, a little? Didn't you feel a little safer too? I mean, as safe as you. I, yes, because here's the thing, Michelle. At that particular prison, 
the volunteers made the difference. There were two worship services at that prison every single evening. The chaplain there was called by the Lord. In the morning, there would be Bible study from nine o'clock until noon to anyone that was able to come. In the afternoon, they would show one of the Christian movies and that sort of thing. That's in the sanctuary of that chapel. Then there was a, a library and there was also a study room where you could rent little DVD or not rent, but just check out DVDs and other resources. It felt like a real place. And oh it was to really just dive in there. There's an accredited ministry licensing school, higher ground school of ministry. There's evangelism explosion, Toastmasters International, and not the Gavel Club, but the real Toastmasters and an amazing Kairos ministry. Wow. It was so it was just an amazing part of the journey that the Lord had me go there because I just started going to the chapel. And that's what it was. I just started getting into that daily spiritual formation and I started praying again eventually. And it was sure. during that prayer time that I would, you know, just think of, you know, thank you, Lord, yeah. that I can be where there's music and all of these things. And I figured out that you had to join the choir to play an instrument. So I was already wanting to do that. I'd already done my time, if you will, in the choir, because there was a waiting period before you could play an instrument. But when I was about to say, you know, I play the piano, the the chapel where he's like, yeah, the big boy plays. And that's so, so he volunteered me. And so he remembered from that very first conversation oh. that, and so he, you know what he knew from the look in your eye, he yeah. saw the way you were pining for that machine, not machine, but that instrument, right? Yeah, right. he could see, he could tell. Okay, so tell us about that. Like I, because obviously you're you're a good player, you're a good, uh, great musician. Okay, but I'm sure you had to be rusty. So the first time you sit down to play. Is it in, were you reading some hymnal or were you, were you given like sheet music for a song the choir was singing? What, do you remember what that was? I do remember it was for Christmas. It was the song, Mary, Did You Know? Oh, and <gasps> absolutely. And the, the cool thing is I, I haven't had a chance to expound on this with our other interaction but I've been looking at this old piano that once again, I wouldn't have paid five bucks for prior to incarceration. Before incarceration, I had a six foot two handmade concert grand piano from the Czech Republic. You know, it was, I think it was like $42,000 whenever we bought it. And that was a used price. Oh, so I had, a, I had a beautiful concert grand before this and so I'm looking at this piano like, oh my. So I think that I'm about to play this old upright piano I've looked at the entire time. And they bring out a full-size Yamaha digital piano that's in the back. So it's even better because I'm not dealing with an out-of-tune old right. piano. Yeah. Now, eventually, get this, my sixth grade teacher 
paid to have that piano tuned because I told her about it. And she ended up going back. Wait, she, yeah, she is one of the only people that maintained contact with me during my incarceration, Mrs. Romine. And she became like a mom to me. And she was my hope cheerleader along the way. And she so beautiful. So is she still alive? She is. And she lives in Alabama. I've seen her since I've been out. And she and her husband came to see me three different times while I was incarcerated. Oh, I love her. I love her so much. I don't even know her. Oh, gosh. Oh, she, she's wonderful. But she did. She And she sent me some of her sheet music because mine had been displaced. And she also played classically and that sort of thing. Yeah. And so I got my hand in and, you know, some of the composer, I believe I got a little bit of Chopin and Beethoven. um, And it was, it was wonderful, but also a lot of hymn arrangements. So we eventually got the acoustic piano because that's always my preference. And, you know, but, but it was cool because then people started wanting to learn people, but in prison. Right. You asked me, though, if I was rusty and that sort of thing. Yeah. It came back to me like that. Yeah. And I don't know how else to say that. I'm not being conceited when I oh, say that. Oh, no. Yeah. It's like a muscle. It's like riding a bike once you start. Right. Yeah. It was it was in here. And I wasn't playing the really complicated no. Chopin etudes and that sort of thing. So it's not like it took it my dexterity a moment to catch up. So. Yeah, I can I get it. I get it because I think I shared. You know, I went out yes. and got this little this little keyboard, and I sat down and I was like, oh, I guess I can play a little." Yeah. Um. So okay. So then, how how long after that? Bef- well, okay. No, there's. I don't want to miss this part. So, other people are in prison with you, and they're now learning how they're learning music theory from you um and how did that like come about how did that transpire as far as like how do you go from just being a piano player with a choir to actually teaching them theory right well the choir i want to say that when i got there the choir had six people and then the step up group the praise team had six people but to be in the praise team, you also had to be in the choir. So it was the same six people. So, and oh. I, <laughs> so I'm just going with their with their rules and everything. But once I started playing and that sort of thing, and I had played guitar in the past and some other instruments, you know, I started tr- helping them gently. Not like, hey, you should do it this way because that's right. never the approach to take there. But it took a while to get the other musicians even to trust me. It's all about trust. Sure. And then sure. knowing your intentions. I'm not trying to take this from you. You need no. to know that I do not want to play the guitar. You know, those are those types right. of just you want to empower them. Yeah. Encourage yes. them. Yeah. Right. But but that takes trust and that yes. is not easily given, especially in, in, in that environment. Absolutely not. So it took, I would say about nine months 
of me just practicing quite a bit of me just being there and I wouldn't offer my suggestions on you know choral technique I wouldn't I just sat there and I was happy to play and that was it yeah and then the person that was over the music the inmate that was over the music left he got out of prison and that sort of thing and he appointed me to carry the torch and that's how it always happened in there and he said I think Nick is going to be the person you know to carry you forward and so just learn from him and wow and I took that as a real it was it was the most meaningful thing I could have had at that moment sure and and so we went with it and there was a volunteer who happened to be from the same part of rural Alabama where I grew up. And we had had that small talk at a Kairos four-day weekend, kind of like the Emmaus walk and those kinds of things. Yeah. So I went, I had the amazing opportunity to go through that weekend. I connected with Mr. Jim, who had already appreciated my music. And he kept saying that. But at that point, people were asking me to teach them. And right next to the chaplain's office was a very small room. And he allowed me to teach people music inside of that room. Okay. And there was a door into his office so that he could maintain supervision, and which, which is necessary. Sure. And, but it was wonderful. But I never had time then to play anything that I wanted to play because I was always teaching everyone else. Oh. So I was trying to really get some of my practice time back. Michelle, I was being selfish and offering the music theory class because I wanted more time. I didn't know that so many people from the prison would actually want to play. And we had to have waiting list after waiting list because so many people wanted to learn how to read music. And that's exactly what happened. He, he Mr. Jim donated the supplies. I wanted a book. And by then we had the JPay tablets and that sort of thing. So Mrs. Romine gave me some money through JPay to download several classical albums and I went through Baroque music, classical music, romantic music, contemporary music, as well as a lot of choral masterworks, those kinds of things. So that when the music theory class would start, I had what I called exposure. And that's where they're exposed to music. I know they probably never heard unless it's on a movie soundtrack or yeah. something like that. And as I started teaching them not only theory, but music vocabulary is what I call it. Just yeah. those key terms as they were would listen, I would have them write down what tempo or are we at Allegro or we presto is it really fast? What are our dynamic markings? Right. And I refuse to allow people to say loud and soft, yeah. but to forte oh. and piano. Yeah, and, say all the <laughs> kind of like a German class where you, you are have tough. To, so, <laughs> I was, but they wanted that. They yeah. they are because many volunteers that come in, 
they're scared. You know what I mean? They don't know how far to push the people. And at that point, I I was beyond that because they recognized. You were one of them. It didn't matter. You didn't have anything to lose. You were already. Yeah. I Right. Exactly. And you knew how to relate. Right. And because I did, I could say stuff that a volunteer couldn't say. Right. I I can make analogies. And we talk about drugs and that sort of thing. I realized that in teaching the music notes and everything that I, I wasn't getting through with the whole note, the half note, the quarter, and someone piped up. It's like drugs. And yeah, here's and the whole thing. Exactly, yep. And that's how we, they related to some of those things. Now I tried to stay away from that, but inevitably every single class that would come up And I found out with the GED instructors that they would also use that for fraction work. Sure. So it's what people know, but all of that to say, so we had a time of exposure. We had a time of oral skill set training. Like you were talking about the Suzuki method definitely uses oral skills. And I taught them solfege. They had to use the hand signs for do, re, mi, they had, and, and we were doing, I would get them in a circle and have different people lead each week and find their voice. We worked on vocal breathing, all of those things. And they would sing, row, row, row your boat round after round until they could hear the harmony and, and keep a consistent rhythm. And then we would do, um, there's an interdenominational monastery and it's in Tizay, France. If you ever Google me, you'll see I love that place. I've been there several times. Okay. There's some news articles about that. But what uh, drew me to Tizay was the intricate harmony and the textures vocally of that style music. And all it is, they're typically eight measure songs in okay. four part harmony, sometimes six part harmony. And that's what we did, that we would break up into sections. And I, there were a couple of guys that had been in piano with me, and it was what I called their application. They would go into the practice room, and they would just hammer out the parts. And then finally, the guys started being able to read the parts. And that's where those light bulbs came on. That's where those aha moments happened. Yes. Where they saw that the solfege with why I had them going up all the way with the solfege because the music goes up and down. Right, Like everything started making sense. It was a different language to them and they were learning it. They were embracing it. Yeah. Yeah. And they started composing and playing and Michelle, over 400 men completed at least the first two levels. That's what I considered having completed the class so that meant that they did 32 weeks of intense music theory training just to get to the point of being able to pick up an instrument. They weren't able to apply it until that we had so many people oh we goodness. could not we couldn't even have them touch an yeah, instrument. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So, but it's it was awesome. So, it, so it, how long then after that were you incarcerated? Like how long? Did you work with them before you 
were released? I worked there um, about three, three and a half years that that took place. And I'm see the fruit of the guys that got out with the first couple of classes where they would take those classes and then be released is amazing. It is so simply that, amazing. That's like another story, isn't it? It is. We will have to go get in there. I mean, well, because I'm thinking, oh man, oh man, music. we need to hear it all, right? So you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe the things that are going through my head right now, because I'm, well, I'm like, dude, I want to write. I want to have a reunion. That's what I want to get up together. Yes. And for us to do, like, I've got a lot of hopes and dreams for the new year and getting together all of the guys that I know that took the first two levels at least and to get us together and to do some of our those so, oral arrangements we made and things like that. So I, I would like to have you come back and I want to talk about those men in, in the next segment, maybe, okay. I guess. Perfect. But to, to close just for today, um, so what... What Nick is doing now is he has an effective group. This is from your website, stormfoundation.us. We are an effective group of people dedicated to making strategic impact in reducing opioid deaths and recidivism. I can never say this word, recidivism. Did I say it right? That's it. And so he and I, you know, share the same passion, only his story is just fantastic. But Storm Foundation came from a man he met in prison and his name was Storm. Do you think you could talk about Storm quickly here and then maybe elaborate in the next session or? Sure. Okay. I met Storm. He was one of the folks that went through the music theory class. My first time encountering him outside of the chapel I was trying to lose some weight and I was walking the track that they had there. And he said, can I share my testimony with you? And he did that and he did it graciously and he just loved Jesus. And yeah. he had a hard road. He had been addicted to drugs. His mom was addicted to drugs. She ended up passing away of AIDS and he was just in a lot of pain made choices all related to substance abuse. Yeah. And he passed away, Michelle, three months before his release after doing almost 15 years, he was in a work release and he, he had an issue with a blockage in his stomach. And he had said his stomach was hurting for a couple of days. And then he was found on the toilet and he was just completely, he had passed away. Oh. And I found that out while I was at Putnam still. And he and I had, I had signed up to go to work release as well at that point because I changed. I was on good behavior. I wanted to go the same one he was at. And I had to change because that was, and, and oh, I God. did. But, so, but it, it's after him. He was one of my best friends and he was in the praise team and he's just, he's. So he's he awesome. went, he, so he was going to get out. So he went to work release. And so was that like the next progression um, to your release would have been work release and then out? Or did you just right. go from there to out? Or did you ever no, go? To I, was, 
I went to work release as well at Bridges of America. I did 14 months after Putnam. I got out and I was able to get a job. And that's how I started saving and doing the things that I needed to do because I didn't have family anymore. And I knew that I didn't have a mama to call and I had to make it on my own. So I went there. I started working as much as I could. And when I got out of work release, Michelle, I had almost $14,000 saved up. And that's what I was able to start my life with. And I, it, it's just God intervening and making doors open. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Well, moms, I just want you to know that you know, this, this is a hope story and we can't, we can't do it for our children, right? We just, we can't do it for them. We can't work, do all the work for them. We can't make the choices for them because they're adults, but we can encourage and we can love and we can meet them where they are and just listen to understand. And, um, I'd love for you to go to stormfoundation.us if uh, this touched your heart at all, because I, I know that Nick, um, in his ministries of what he's doing now, he is developmenter, uh, director of development, say it, housing, no. oh, uh, and restorative housing with a company called Inspirational Ministries. But this isn't what Storm Foundation is, is it? No. No, we are partnering with them, but, but okay. no. so I went up, I started storm foundation and I started looking at places that were effective, Michelle, because there's no time to waste. And I want to see people that are being effective so that I had, I storm and I had great ideas in prison when it was just going to be the redemption ministries. But, you know, as we're doing this, I want to be effective. And they have a statistic where instead of 78% incarceration, they're at 14% incarceration. And that's such a drastic statistic that I had to know more. Right. And the amazing thing is their founder and Storm were best friends <gasps> in another facility. And that's why we have the connection we do. And if you look on their website, you'll find more about Storm as well. But when so I what's wanted, their what's their for uh website? It's inspiration-ministries.org. Okay. And then um ministries.org. I'm writing this down, moms. And then I can put it in, in the show notes too, and I'll look it up. And so if they donate money to the Storm Foundation, how is that different? I guess it's different just because I've actually, you'll love this because of my charges being related to fraud that actually got me into prison. I want to be above reproach with anything that I'm involved with. And so I've actually asked Inspiration Ministries to help administer the finances for Storm and the board of directors with Storm agreed with that i wasn't i just wanted accountability and transparency where if someone looks me up they're like okay what's that guy got going on it's yeah. where i can always say here you go here's our financial report and right. i'm not tempted there's nothing there and i i absolutely and, love that and so the fact so the money goes to helping people 
in recovery or? Yes, we, I, I actually start after our podcast today at 3.15, actually, I am going to begin the process for being licensed as a peer support specialist for those that are dealing with substance abuse, because I want our homes here in Florida, just like Inspirations Homes there. In Indiana? Yes, in Indiana to be certified recovery homes so that when these folks are getting out of prison or when they've reached their last hit in substance abuse, they can come to our homes. They can go through between six weeks and 12 weeks of time where they focus on themselves, not to be a halfway house, but to be an all the way house. I love it. Yeah, and I then love it. go and work and those types of things with businesses we're networking with already. And we are in the process right now of buying three recovery homes here in Northeast Florida. And you'll find out in your in Indiana, Northeast Indiana, Inspiration has over 200 recovery beds that are wow. there and hey. available. So that's awesome. what if you were to donate, that's, it would just go to housing because we've already been, people have donated beds and clothes and yeah. all of these. And we, we did that too. Yeah. That's awesome. We just need yeah. homes now. So yeah, we, we just, yeah, we're, we downsized. So we donated it to a shelter for a place for moms who transition from jails and prisons. Well, thank you so much, Nick. And I, I will definitely have you back because I want to hear more of your story. And I know others want to hear more about it too. So just hold on, but um, stay with me. And um, thank you for listening, moms. If you have any questions, I'm going to put them in the show notes here on YouTube, if you're listening on YouTube or on my podcast, uh, Moms Letting Go Without Giving Up. God bless.